And take your Bibles and turn to Numbers chapter 21. While you're turning there, I made the joke about it earlier, but it is a sweet thing to preach to people that are so active in encouraging me, encouraging my family. I appreciate that. That was not sarcasm. It may have sounded like it. Unfortunately, that's my natural tone. It just never, never quite sounds good. All right, Numbers chapter 21. starting in verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negeb, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. And they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. Set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone... He would look at the bronze serpent and live. And the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth. They set out from Oboth and camped at Ea-Abarim in the wilderness that is opposite of Moab toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb and Sufa and the valleys of Arnon, and the slope of the valleys that extends to the seats of Ar that leans on the border of Moab. And from there they continued to beer. That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song. Spring up, O well, sing to it the well that the princes made, that the nobles of the people dug with scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they went on to Matanah, and from Matanah to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Bamoth, 
and from Bemoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab, by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, and Heshbon, and all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore the ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built, let the city of Sihon be established, for fire came out from Heshbon, flame for the city of Sihon, it devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, O Moab! You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives to an Amorite king, Sihon. So we overthrew them. Heshbon, as far as Debon, perished. We laid waste as far as Nophah. Fire spread as far as Mediba. Thus Israel lived in the land of the Amorites. Moses sent to spy out Jazer. They captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand and all his people in his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. Let's pray. Father, you've spoken in the reading of your word. We ask that you would speak in its preaching. There are few endeavors where we so clearly see our frailty. The frailty of the speaker and the frailty of us as we are listeners. Would your spirit be strong? For Christ's sake, amen. Every once in a while, you run across some kind of paragraph or poetry or song or poem or something of the sort that kind of captures an idea and says it in such a way that you're like, wow, that, that that articulates so much of what I see around me or what I experience, what I know to be true. One of those great paragraphs along the way, it's a chorus and a song written by Bob Weir, interestingly enough. Some of you will know that name, many of you won't. Describing kind of the rampant, uh, we'll call it generously, romance of the 60s. Describing what kind of new possibilities were available as sexuality in America was changing. And in his reoccurring chorus, he has 
this statement, you imagine me sipping champagne from your boot for a taste of your elegant pride. I may be going to hell in a bucket, but at least I'm enjoying the ride. I may be going to hell in a bucket, babe, but at least I'm enjoying the ride. I remember hearing that and thinking, wow, that is brazen. Whew. And thinking, man, that, that captures so much of what our great nation has been since the late 60s when they started playing this. Greatest one-hit wonder in American history. I may be headed to hell in a bucket, babe, but at least I'm enjoying the ride. And when I was younger, I thought that was actually true. I thought, I thought Weir was actually articulating kind of the American moment, the American mindset, the American attitude that, yeah, oh, okay, we may be headed to hell, but man, we're going to have a great time doing it. Yeah, we may be kind of going down to the pits, but we're going to have a good time along the way. And as I've aged and grown a bit older now over the hill begin to realize that, that actually Weir's not speaking a truth in this paragraph. This is actually what you might call an optimistic statement. This is a, what we might call a lie to yourself. Now, I may be headed to hell in a bucket, babe, but in this part you have to imagine being said through gritted teeth. It's, it's almost like wishing it would come true. It, at least I'm enjoying the ride. We look around at a nation and we get increasingly, it's obvious. The veneer is wearing thin. We have people saying everywhere, hey, at least I'm enjoying the ride. And it's becoming so obvious, it's a lie. <laughs> it's a lie. It doesn't last. Intriguingly, the man who wrote that years later would settle down in a faithful marriage in which he himself would admit that the, the, the rampant immorality that he experienced in his youth was not the key to happiness. In fact, actually a faithful marriage to a wife is an improvement. Again, he doesn't know Christ as best I know, and so again, it's the veneer of truth with the self-deception wearing through. I may be headed to hell in a bucket, but at least I'm enjoying the ride. Part of why that is, I suspect, is as a culture, as a nation, as the various people groups that make up the melting pot of the U.S., we've lost some sort of kind of cultural mooring that would draw us to something, a life outside of ourselves. An idea, something grander, something, something bigger, something external that we would be able to appeal to. Now, historically in the past, there have been many things that have filled that, but all of them in this great nation have in some fashion been influenced by a Judeo-Christian work ethic and realistically biblical truth. But as we've watched that go, we're increasingly watching a nation that gets more frenetic, more uptight, more twitchy, 
more just wound tight. Because that latter statement is increasingly not ringing true. At least I'm enjoying the ride. You have a nation that is increasingly not enjoying the ride. We look at the polarization of politics, the polarization of culture, polarization of family relationships, polarization of the workplace, polarization of medicine, polarization, you pick it. A nation that is increasingly not enjoying the ride. The answer our nation is offering, our culture is kind of offering, is to really kind of throw yourself into yourself more. (laughs) Some form of self-actualization that in order to enjoy the ride, you just need to be more true to yourself. That's been, that's been the problem. The reason why we're not having fun anymore is because people are no longer true to themselves. It hasn't worked for 40 years, but let's try it further now. Bad idea, let's do it harder. Let's, let's be more true to ourselves. Let's be more expressive with our personalities, more expressive with our words online, more expressive in our sexuality, more expressive in our identity, more expressive in it. Let's just be more me. And the more that happens, friends, the more that veneer wears thin. The more the holes begin to show we're not enjoying the ride. As a nation, as a culture, as a people, we're not enjoying the ride. It's not fun. And the reason being is because we're giving the wrong medicine. We're taking the wrong medicine. It's like we we kind of, as a moment in our nation, have begun to realize, like, we're struggling. We've been poisoned as a culture. And the way that we're going to deal with that poison is by drinking more of the poison. Not having fun with that. What we've lost is an answer that God explains in Numbers chapter 21. A hope that's presented in Numbers chapter 21. A joy, a truth, a reality, a life that is presented in Numbers chapter 21. I hope that one, you don't have to go to hell in a bucket in the first place. But you do actually have the privilege to enjoy the ride. The true story, the real historical story, this actually happened story, picks up in chapter 21, immediately following some of the Lord's most severe discipline in chapter 20. God's people have been complaining again and again and again and again and again and again, and and it finally broke Moses. He finally snapped, and as a result, God's discipline falls on him It falls on Aaron for prior sin in a previous chapter, and Miriam as well. This isn't God's wrath. It's not God's eternal punishment. We know all three of these will be in heaven, but instead his disciplinary, his fatherly discipline to show them that sin is serious. It has consequences. Life-altering 
creation-defining consequences. Sin is one of the things that affects your life more than gravity, more than oxygen, more than water. I have a turning point in the beginning of 21, and this actually starts out with this amazingly kind of happy moment. They've tried to, you know, they're coming out of Egypt. Let's see if I can do the map backwards for you here. They're coming out of Egypt. They've come out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea into Sinai. Now they're moving up and getting ready to try to go into Jerusalem, go into Israel, headed north. Inconveniently, there is a nation located between where they are and Israel in the north, and that is the nation of Edom. And they've asked permission to go through the end of middle of chapter 20. Edom, a cousin to Israel, says, no, that's not happening. (laughs) I know it's convenient. I know you could travel on the highway. That's not happening. And if you try it, we're going to come out and kill you all. So Israel is forced to, instead of going through Edom, the short road, take the long road around uh, through the wilderness, through the desert, into kind of prepping them to cross uh, from the east across the Jordan. And we have in just these first three verses this kind of just little, kind of almost barely even described addendum of what God is doing. Oh yeah, by the way, just in passing, there's this nation that got upset about Israel even moving at all. And as a result, they went and attacked Israel and took some of the Jews captive. So God used Israel and killed them all. God used Israel and wiped them off the face of the map and devoted them to destruction. In fact, actually what we would see in these verses is God's law given in Leviticus and then coming again in Deuteronomy is is enacted. This is how uh, the evildoer is dealt with. This tremendous victory in verses 1, 2, and 3, and you get to see kind of this first glimpse of what this new Israel could be. The Israel that knows their God, that is known by their God, the Israel that's been walking in the desert, that's learned the lessons of disobedience, the the Israel that's watched the ground eat them and maybe shouldn't complain anymore, the Israel that you think, man, this is it, they finally got it. But they don't. But they don't. And immediately after this great victory, they return, as the Proverbs say, like a dog to its vomit. They go back to their old ways and return immediately to their complaining spirit. I suspect this is just on a side note, maybe the first lesson we should be on guard for. Be on guard that our greatest successes don't become our greatest weaknesses. In this new Israel, this is the new generation. This is one of the great victories they have along the way thus far. This is kind of the first proof that the God who took care of them and brought them out of Egypt, the one who's been with them while all of the previous generation has been dying and dying and dying and dying, that God hasn't left them. And he still has his power and he still gives it to his people the moment that they experience victory, the moment that they have any sort of kind of claim to greatness, what do they do? They immediately fall apart. Perhaps that might be a thing that would be appropriate for us at the Christridge Presbyterian Church to contemplate. When we look at the Lord's blessed us, He continues to bless us, He has poured out blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing upon this church. 
If we were going to contemplate literally just the last calendar year, how many miracles have we seen God answering prayer? How many people do we have in the building today that should be in glory but aren't yet? How many many thousands of dollars have been given that way above what our budget could have planned for, that we're able to hire an associate pastor and God provide? So we're going to be in surplus again this year unless something weird happens. How many new bodies are in the chairs? We got a brand new sanctuary, two years old, and we're already having to figure out, okay, do we get more chairs? What do we do? Blessing after blessing after blessing. And friends, how easy is it to be so kind of captivated with the victory, so captivated with the blessing, that we stop paying attention that we stop being on guard, that we stop being captivated with who Christ is and the work that He's doing and return so quickly, so easily to our sinful bad habits. It's not a hard journey from verse 3 to verse 4. It's not a long one either. I'd love to pretend that this is one of those parts in the Bible that we could say, well, that was true for them, but it's not true for us. Great reality is, though, so many of our greatest failures as humans come immediately following our greatest victories. And I would think we'd have to say, if we're considering the history of this church, the last calendar year has been the pinnacle thus far. And as a result, I think it is extremely important that we as this portion of God's church remain humble, remain aggressively committed to the Bible, aggressively committed to prayer, and aggressively committed to rooting out sin in our own lives. And we don't grow lazy in spiritual growth. Well, that's what happens here to them. They've grown lazy as a people group again to spiritual growth. They've seen all kinds of terrible things happen to people that complain. Uh, It's the most amazing one earlier in the book where the ground eats people for complaining, and they complain literally the next day. Literally the next day. You would think superstition alone would be enough to not have you do that, but okay. This time we have something different. Perhaps for some of us in the room, this would be a neat thing to be able to watch snakes like this. For most of us, I suspect this is our waking nightmare. As they journey from the south around the wilderness to the east, they begin to grow weary again of God's provision. They grow weary again of what God is doing. They grow weary again of how God is taking care of them. They grow weary again of manna. They grow tired of God's plan and God's provision In verse 5, this one you can hear almost in a sympathetic fashion. Moses, what are you doing, man? Why have you brought us out here to die? There's no food, there's no water, and I'm really tired of manna. I'm really tired of it, man. You can imagine that conversation. It's not a hard one to have, and yet they've known this is a grumble against not just Moses, but against the Lord himself. We loathe this worthless food. Well, what is the worthless food? It's food that God himself has miraculously provided. 
And so the Lord does again, as I mentioned, what for many of us might be considered our waking nightmare. He sends snakes, a lot of them, not just a couple, not just three or four in a nation of a million. He sends a lot. And the way the Hebrew here is translated very, very well by the ESV is it's fiery serpents. That's the same word that the seraphim are drawn from, the fiery beings of heaven. Most likely, again, most likely what we think this is, is that these are snakes that are uh, severely venomous, uh, and their bite burns like fire until you die. That's joyful, isn't it? It's a wonderful way to go. Again, we think, um, as best we can tell, if the serpents of that area are the same ones today as they were back then, it's most likely either a carpet adder or a black mamba. Hmm, joyful things, right? The first one of those carpet viper is the most venomous snake in northern Africa. It's terrible. It's awful. Uh, They also like to hide so you don't see them, and then they sneak out and they bite you and you die. It's intriguing, though. This is where, again, I think you begin to kind of get this moment where Israel would have had that that kind of same kind of cultural question that I think we're being confronted with in 2022, will be in 2023. Are we having fun with this anymore, folks? I mean, it's fun and all to travel through and you get to see all the miracles and the crazy things that God has done. And I guess it's one thing where if you complain and the ground is opening up and eating other people. But now something's different happened. Where interestingly, this discipline by God is not connected to those few people that complained. It's not connected to them and their households the way that it has been prior. What the Lord has done is to an entire nation, he's given out his fatherly discipline to help them understand complaining against God is evil. It's evil. It's that whole, well, you might not have been having fun before, but I guarantee you're not now. You think you don't know what not having fun is. Well, let's get a lesson from God. Now, the interesting thing is, is we could easily say here, well, God is, he's being petulant, he's being angry, he's being grumpy, he's, he's just being unfair. He hates his people. And that's not the case at all, actually. This is fatherly discipline. Again, remember, for all of these people that are, that are true Christians, that are united to God, uh, when they die from the serpent, they pass into his presence. This is the the great kind of treat of biblical discipline is the worst thing God can do to you is bring you to his side, the place that we want to be most. It's the worst thing he can do to you. But what he's doing to them is good parenting, is that he's teaching them that sin is more miserable than anything else in life. And I think having a herd or flock of serpents or whatever it's actually called coming into your town and into your nation and just biting everyone so they die, I think that would be a fairly miserable thing to teach you to learn that. To help you begin to see that, you know, sin is awful. It's miserable. I don't like it. I really don't want to do it anymore. It might feel good in the moment. It might make me happy for two or three or five minutes or an hour, but in the end, it's 
not good. It's not good. And that's how the Lord is instructing them. He's teaching them. Some of you, you might relate to this. Perhaps when you were teenagers, you might have decided that you were going to test the boundaries at home with mom and dad. Maybe before you were teenagers, some of you. And mom and dad made the point that, look, kiddo, I haven't lost yet with you, and I'm not going to start today. And I'm going to make you miserable enough that you do what I want, whether or not your heart's in it. Friends, that's called good parenting is what that's called. That's, in essence, what the Lord is doing with his people here is to say, look, I'm, I'm going to show you that your sin might feel good for a moment, but it is, it is poison. It's death. And while it might feel good for a moment, in the long run, it's destruction. It's, it's death to your soul. So instead, <laughs> you get serpents which are going to make you miserable enough that you think it's probably not a good idea to do that. You know, the fun thing, this is the last chapter that God's people complain in this book. It's almost like his discipline works. Like, hey, you know what? I don't, I'm not in for the snakes anymore. I don't think I'm going to do that again. The Lord's really good. I think I'm going to just dwell on that. I think this is a good thing. Right? It works. He does exactly what he's designed to do. They stop complaining. In fact, actually, it's so successful in his discipline that in verse 7, we see a really kind of marked change for the people of God. Genuine repentance. The people come to Moses and they say, we've sinned. There's no asterisk here. There's, there's no qualifier. We've sinned. We spoke against the Lord, his covenant name here. This isn't generic God. This is our covenant-keeping Lord. We spoke against our God, and we spoke against his mediator, Moses. We did evil in the sight of God. Please pray to God on our behalf that he will take his discipline away. Real and genuine repentance. Now, pastorally, been around long enough to know that in a room this size, there are at least a couple of us that are probably in that moment right now where we've kind of come to realize that we're not having very much fun. And in fact, actually, we've come to realize that because we know we're in sin. There's probably not all of us in the room, but there's definitely some of us where we know that we are harboring sin, where we, we know that we're trying to find pleasure in the evil, where we know we're continuing to do it, trusting that, well, I won't get disciplined for it this time. And friends, I would, I would beg you, I would plead with you. The Lord loves you so much, He's not going to let you have fun with that forever. It's not because he's small-minded. It's not because he's petty. It's because he loves you. And he loves you so much, he will not let you drink that poison forever. For some of you, this is actually where you need to be. You know you're in sin. And even when I say that, you feel like, Michael's talking to me. 
I don't want to admit that. I might be in denial. I might even be able to say, oh, Michael doesn't know about it. Friends, the issue is not that I'm speaking to you. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And he's calling you to repent. He's calling you to go to the Lord and to say, Father, I have sinned. I've sinned against you by doing this thing, name it. This thing is killing me. Maybe at a slower rate than fiery serpents, but it's killing me. Would you please forgive me and help take it away? Interestingly, the Lord does that and does it immediately. He provides the way out for them, but it's not in the way that you would expect. This is setting up the New Testament in the most spectacular fashion. You would, you would think that it would be repentance, and okay, what would happen? Well, Moses would have to offer a sacrifice, and after Moses offers the sacrifice, God would accept the smoke of the sacrifice, and then something would happen to the serpents. A flood would come through and wash them all away or something. I don't know. They'd all eat each other and then disappear in the smoke. The interesting thing is the Lord doesn't take the snakes away. He doesn't stop them from biting. He doesn't stop the bites from hurting. Instead, he gives them someone to hope in. This is interesting. He he takes a physical problem of uh, snakes that are biting and killing us and provides a spiritual solution. Lord said to Moses, and this is what Moses does, makes a fiery serpent. In this case, it's bronze. It would look like it's on fire. Copper, brass, bronze, one of the three, that's the same word in the Hebrew. It would have been shiny so that when the sun shone upon it, it would look like it was actually made of fire. It was set on a pole, probably rather large snake sat on a very large pole. And any time somebody was bitten, because they were going to continue being bitten, remember this is often how God's discipline works, to make you so miserable that you don't do it again. But any time someone was bitten, they could look up at the bronze serpent and live. They could have hope that God would be faithful and their life would be spared. See, that's actually what's working in the heart. That's the mechanic of what's taking place is God is saying, look, I'm going to give you a clear portrait of my promise and the way you live is by hoping in my promise. What does my promise look like now? It, it looks like a snake. Go figure. And the way that you don't die, Israel, is by hoping that God keeps his promise that you will live. And you know what the biblical term for that is? Hoping that God keeps his promise that you will live? There's a fancy one. It's called faith. That's really all faith is. It's hoping that God will keep his promises. That's how they didn't die. They said, the Lord has promised that this serpent, just looking at the serpent, and the snake bite will be, the venom will be, you know, done away with. And I won't die if I look at the serpent and trust that God's promise will save me. You see, this is why it's picked up in John chapter 3 by Jesus. This is what Brandon read for us. 
so wonderfully. He's having the conversation with the gentleman as he's evangelizing him and teaching him. And he's like, how can you be bored again? I don't understand. Yeah. And Jesus explains, how, how does salvation work? Salvation works the same way where the object of hatred is lifted up. The portrait of sin is lifted up and the people of God get to look at it and claim God's promise as their own. This is so ironic. I mean, again, in Numbers 21, you've just been bitten by a serpent. What's the last thing you want to go look at? The thing that just bit you. Eh, My leg feels like it's about to explode. My heart feels like it's about to explode. My blood is turning to liquid, more liquidy than it already is, and is getting starting to leak out my ears. I'll go look at a snake on a pole. That's what I want to see. That's the point Jesus is actually making is that the thing on the pole is the thing you don't want to see. It's, It's the actual object of the curse itself. And intriguing, he's already explaining to them that in just a few short years after he's talking to Nicodemus, at this point, roughly, what, 1,400 years or so? Can't do math in the pulpit. This Jesus would show up and would be lifted up just as the serpent, as, as the object of God's wrath. That he would become the sins of his people incarnate. That he would become the wrath of God incarnate on the cross. So that God's people could look at him and say, I know I'm dying. I know I have sin. I know I've done it against the Lord. I know I have poisoned myself. And I've done it day after day and night after night. And some of the same poison I've been drinking for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And my only hope is not that I am a good person. My only hope is not that I can cure the poison. My only hope is the man who's lifted on the cross. That's the only one. Because if anything our own personal history has taught us, you're incompetent at fixing your sin. I love that. You're incompetent at fixing your You can't do it, and I can't either. I mean, honestly, you just look at... Think about all of the failed experiments you've had in self-discipline. How many of you wanted to go to the gym this year and lose weight? That's good for your health. You can't even do that, much less sin, the things that we think we enjoy for a season. Our weekly experience confirms that we can't fix our sin that only the man on the cross can. Our weekly experience confirms that left to our own ends, we will return like a dog to its vomit to consume the same evil things again. Instead, people of God, the curse can be lifted God's wrath can be lifted. The discipline can be lifted. Do you find faith in Christ Jesus looking at him on the cross received by faith? Now, I know most of you in here, and there's some here today, I don't actually know. Praise God for that. That's fun. We're glad you're here. But again, in a room this size, I know there's people in here that don't know the Lord. Some vocally so. 
I'm not, I'm not mad at you. In fact, actually, I'm really glad you're here. I want you to become a part of the family here. But almost certainly, Bob Weir and the Grateful Dead described your life perfectly. <laughs> you may be headed to hell in a bucket. Well, maybe let's correct that. And you're lying to yourself and saying you're having a good time. And friends, if you find yourself in that category, you don't know the Lord Jesus, this is the answer. This is the answer. They're they're telling us in Numbers 21, Moses is telling us, God is telling us in Numbers 21, how am I saved through Jesus? You look at him and you trust that God will keep his promise and that Christ alone is the answer for my sin. And I love this. This is such a wonderful portrait. Do they have to do anything? Is it like God says, well, you know what? If you hop on your right foot the whole time, I'll save you. The serpents won't kill you. If you're a good enough person, the serpents won't kill you. It's tough luck for your neighbor because they're a wretch. You know, they're going to die. Is it, well, you know what? If you, you promise to stop complaining, Israel, if you don't complain again anymore, then God will save you. He won't, he won't do this anymore. It's actually a great object lesson. What, what do they have to do? Just believe in Jesus. Here in Numbers 20, it's believe in the serpent. It's believe in the, the promise of God. But Jesus himself in John chapter 3 explains that he is that promise. So that all who hope in Christ can have a new life. This is why actually the rest of the chapter is so important. It, it's honestly the part where you're like, why is Michael still reading this? And I know that. And then some of you are just waiting to see how many of the names I will mess up. I will give you a hint. As long as I say it with confidence, it means I didn't mess any of them up. And anybody that would complain is dead. So why the rest of the chapter is so important, though, because of what happens. Right? They look... To God's promise, they look in hope to what God is doing. They look at God's redeeming mercy and they say, you alone are the one that can save us. And then you have that kind of ending statement in verse 9, which is really hard. So if a servant bit anyone, he would look at the bronze servant and live. Uh, serpent and live. They, they would keep getting bit. The discipline didn't immediately go away. The Lord's making sure they learn their lesson. Don't do this anymore. It's not fun. But he provides a way out for them. He provides salvation. And then what happens is we immediately jump into a travel dialogue. And again, many of us, not super geographically gifted and oriented, and fair enough, I'm not mad at that. Uh, I've got a great Bible atlas if you want to read one. Uh, I'll make a recommendation for you after the service. But what is described here is they basically begin to make the journey up and around to prepare to go into the promised land. You see, that's actually the significance of what happens in verses 10 through the end of the chapter is they make progress toward the promised land. I love this. They have this moment of grievous sin. The Lord disciplines them. He teaches that he alone is the one who can fix sin. He alone is the one who will, who will redeem them. He is alone the one that will take care of them, preparing them for Jesus. And then once they hope in him and they're made new, he, he moves them along. 
They don't, they're not frozen in time in that moment forever. Right? It's not like that's where Israel then lives forever and ever. And you're like, man, this is a terrible place to live. The snakes are a huge problem. I mean, location, location, location. Can we find a different one? I don't like this. You know, instead, he advances them along so that they get to see more and more of the land that he's promised to them, more and more of the blessing that he's going to give them, more and more of that land flowing with milk and honey, more and more of the rest that they're preparing for. In fact, I love that's what really the end of this is. Verses 31 and following, the king of Og defeated. I love this one because it reads almost like it's an accident, like They're making journey up around, getting ready to go to the land of promise, and oh yeah, this pagan nation gets angry with them and tries to kill them, so God has them wipe them off the face of the earth, and their enemies are completely defeated and are no more. And it was a good day. I love that what God's teaching here is that, friends, is when we become a Christian, when we're united to Christ this way, when we're busy kind of believing and trusting in God's promises, when we're busy finding our faith in Jesus, he doesn't freeze us in time. It's not like we're some kind of woolly mammoth that's unearthed and has been frozen in that pose in the ice for how many thousands of years? I love God doesn't do that to us. He immediately works on us and in us and through us so that we're changed and we go into greater blessing. You see, this is, and I'll end here very quickly. I'm probably a bit long, but I don't really care. It's my birthday weekend. This is what our culture is missing. You see, what we are as a nation saying again is that Bob Weir song, I may be headed to hell in a bucket, I'm not really enjoying the ride anymore. I'm not having fun. And interestingly, what's, why that's taking place is because we've lost, as a nation, as honestly, some branches of the church, this idea that my life is not about me, that my life is about looking at Jesus every day, every minute, every way that I can, looking at Jesus and seeing how he's going to change me as a parent, how he's going to change me as a spouse, how he's going to change me as a student, how he's going to change me as an employee, how he's going to change me as an employer, how he's going to change me in every aspect of my life. And my change isn't coming from me being more true to myself. My change is coming from understanding that Jesus is being true to me. And he always has. And he always will. That's what makes the supper so special. It's not a table for perfect people. I couldn't serve it and you couldn't eat it. I know you and I know me. It's a table for people that want to look at Jesus. A table for people that have their hope that he alone can save and that he will change us even today. Father in heaven, forgive us for our sin. We pray that you would even in this hour have us to look at Christ and prepare us for the supper. For Christ's sake, amen.